Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is June the twenty fourth, two thousand nineteen. This is episode two thousand four hundred fifty seven of the Survival Podcast. You guys have been listening to episodes of TSP Rewind while I've been on vacation. My wife and I had a blast out on Sanibel Island, Florida. One of my favorite places to go. The uh, the fish of the of the of the period was sharks. We caught a bunch of sharks, bonnet heads, black tips, and uh, I spent uh, a good almost an hour battling a 200 plus pound nurse shark. While I was on a guided trip on a boat, uh, we were geared up for fish in like the 70 to 100 pound, maybe 120 pound class range. This thing was well over 200 pounds, and eventually we uh, we cut it off so I could pursue other fish. And because well. Trying to get like a, a, a photo op would have really risked the animal's safety and health and possibly our own. Um, we were just outclassed on gear. We would have had to like tow it into like shallow water or something like that. It just didn't seem right. And frankly, after paying a guide, you know, to be out there for six hours, I wanted to get back to fishing since an hour had been uh, burned up fighting this one fish. But I'm actually rendering a video right now. Uh, four little mini segments of that fight, and you get to see the fish as it comes up at the end. And uh, definitely a bucket list item. I had two bucket list fish on this trip. I had a uh, a bucket list uh, battle, F- fighting a fish over 200 pounds on gear uh, like I was using. That, that that's just something that will you know never. I'll never forget it. It'll never go away. That type of thing. Um, and I caught a snook. If those of you don't know what a snook is, you can look it up. But I caught a snook. Uh, fishing just off the shore, off the beach, and honestly, it's it was the size of a, of a snook that uh, a lot of people that spend their whole life doing nothing but fishing for snook never ever catch a snook this size. So it was really a blessed vacation and time alone with my wife, time alone with our friends Bones and Amy. It was great, but I'm glad to be back. It is a Monday, so it's time for listener feedback show. Here's what we have. We have a weekly community revitalization segment. Today we're going to talk more on mentorship and volunteer work. We have an audience member who's been with us a long time but wants to remain anonymous who wrote in on that. Um, we have uh, a way you can go to college for a dollar a day by working for Walmart. Uh, I'm not going to go too deep into that program, but I'm going to tell you what it really means. Question on feeding fish the right amount in your backyard ponds. Rifles for those with low recoil tolerance and the relative concept of heavy recoil. What's heavy recoil to me may not be to you, and what's to you may not be to me, that type of thing. More on leasing versus buying a vehicle, uh, asking for you to run the numbers for them. And I've, I've talked about my numbers before with why I made a decision to lease a car versus buy it. But the reality is you must run your numbers for the vehicle in question. And there's not like you do it here and you don't do it there. You run the numbers, and then you make a decision based on what the numbers tell you. Excel never lies. We'll talk more about that. Uh, the coming Facebook cryptocurrency called the Libra. Sounds like Libertas, doesn't it? Some of you may remember where that's from. Uh, but it is not liberty-oriented at all. And I'll tell you why I think it's a failure out of the gate. And I'm not saying it's going to fail, as in it won't work. But as a cryptocurrency, it's kind of pointless in, in a real way. I'll explain that and how it really is the establishment throwing up their hands in exasperation and saying, we want a piece of this cryptocurrency thing, but we want to control it, which is not what cryptocurrency is, so we'll just lie. 
uh, and why I wouldn't trust Mark Zuckerberg as far as I could throw. You know what? I can throw him way further than I would trust him. Just looking at the guy. Uh, next up, uh, Bitcoin is on a hell of a bull run. I'll talk to you about why I think it is fairly sustainable in the crypto market as a whole with the quality projects. Related to that, I have a new ARK page. ARK is a type of cryptocurrency that uses proof of stake. We've talked about it a lot in the past. But it's on MeWe, and I want to talk about what I'm calling the page squatting opportunity for some of you entrepreneurs out there. Um, storage of tomatillos. Guy wants to store them fresh. Can only do so much for that, but it did lead me to a MeWe Monday chat suggestion for a video on making tomatillo salsa from dehydrated tomatillos. I'll tell you about that. Uh, another one bites the dust. Now, it's Freddie Mercury week for music this week, but... Um, we're not really talking about his music here. We're talking about another college bites the dust. But it just so happened that uh, the suggestion for that song coincided with Freddie Mercury Week for the music of this week. More on the Texas Wild Tomato. And, as I've been saying, we're doing something called Me We Mondays. This is where we all give Mark Zuckerberg the giant finger. I call it Operation Zuckerberg. And on Mondays, if you are a, again, if you don't use social media, you don't have to be part of this. But if you use social media, specifically Facebook, on Mondays, you don't use Facebook. You come over to MeWe, you hang out with us at the MeWe chat, and you get insight and feedback into the show that you wouldn't get any other way. And all of a sudden, you start to realize, maybe MeWe is a better platform. So from MeWe Mondays, we have why I will use poison on rats and how I do it, how to keep rats and mice out of your chicken feed, your duck feed, etc., Making ribs, yeah, in the carry canner, which I recommend, or the Instapot, etc., uh, or any pressure cooker. Marination the easy way. How about marinating your meat after you cook it? No, I'm not kidding. It really is a thing. And never, ever apologize for your pricing. That's what we're going to talk about today, so let's jump into it with the community revitalization uh, segment here. This email comes in from someone we'll call Bob. Because uh, he wants to remain anonymous, so we'll just make that's one of my favorite fake names is Bob, and we're going to talk about Bob here. He says uh, May six, I found myself listening to episode twenty four thirty. I made a note to myself to follow up and write you about revitalizing and empowering local communities. After you spoke, you suggest the audience write you with some ways and ideas on how to do so. Details. I've always thought it was important to participate in my local community. My reasons driving the importance to me have varied over the years, but the idea was the same. Be involved. Over the years, the most important ways of involvement included the following. Mentoring, including peer mentoring and child mentoring, like big brothers, big sisters. And there's even sex within big brothers and big sisters, such as Operation Bigs, which provides mentorship to children whose parents are deployed. Volunteer work, fraternal organizations, and local charities. I believe work within these two realms of community involvement are huge within the community. For me, participating in the situations oftentimes and still does put me outside my comfort zone. When we go there, we frequently become more vulnerable, and you can take that however you like. Extending myself beyond my comfort zone has allowed me to learn and grow in more ways than I normally wouldn't. This allows me to meet new people, experience new things, and share my life experience in new ways. By living a vibrant life and sharing with community, it in turn will help build vibrant community. And I'll let go on that because I have some thoughts on this that I think are, are, are quite useful. What, what Bob is really talking about here is being involved, just simply being involved. 
having a connection to your community larger than what you get out of it. That's really what this is about. Whether we do this through a structured organization of child mentoring and doing big brothers and big sisters, for instance, we do it through a fraternal organization that goes out and does some kind of community work or simply builds stronger bonds within the community, or whether we do it by simply kind of deciding that there's maybe some, let's say some older people in our community that have a little trouble getting around and saying, I can't help everybody, but I can help somebody, and maybe we dedicate you know, half a day once a week to four people by going and getting their groceries for them and delivering them, something like that, or any of a number of things that we could be doing. It doesn't matter. When we do this, we, we, we begin to form greater connection. And then we get to know people. And when we get to know people, we end up knowing the people they know. And the people they know end up knowing us. And people start to realize that when they look out their door and they see houses, they're not just buildings. They're places where people live. And I know that sounds like rudimentarily simple. But if you think about it, America went from a place, and this happened in my life. Okay, I saw this happen during my own lifetime. Where a person could walk out their door, and if you said, who lives there? Well, Tom lives there. Who lives there? Bob lives there. Who lives there? Sam lives there. Who lives there? Michael lives there. And people knew everybody. Well, there's a married couple over there, and they have a son. His name is Richie, and he plays in the show. They knew everybody. So now you go, well, who lives there? And a lot of times they don't know. They might know a first name. Oh, that's uh, Bill. That's Bill, yeah. I see Bill when we get the news. Sometimes we come out to get a newspaper at the same time, or no one reads the newspaper. We have the mail or take the garbage out, and I see him. Uh, what's he do? I don't know. Does he got any kids? I think I saw one one time. What's his wife's name? Never came out. That's, that's what's happened. And the reason is kind of a blessing and a curse, I think, and it is online. It is the world of the Internet. People have taken to getting the connections they're looking for, the feedback they're looking for, the advice they're looking for, the advice they want to give, the mentorship they seek, and the mentorship they want to give on the Internet. And I, for one, am not somebody that wants to fold up and go back to the 1600s and die of common diseases, along with not having things like air conditioning, thank you, Dr. Carrier, along with having things like cars, and along with you know all the things that, that, that do great things for us today. I don't want to turn it all off. But there's a difference between something being an addition to our lives and something being a replacement. And I'm going to talk later today about Me We Mondays and social media, so I don't want you to take this the wrong way. But if everything you're doing and everything you're getting is from social media, then it's no surprise if most people are doing that. That when you look around your community and you say nobody's connected within the community, but everybody's virtually connected with the people they more identify with, that local communities are suffering. And local communities are atrophying. And local communities are just becoming like the places people live and the connections are larger. And this is something we need to explore more. Because there is both good and bad there. I've talked about the concept in the past. We'll probably need to again, probably about time for another look at the concept of virtual nations. And the people that most clearly identify from a standpoint of values and desires are able to connect in ways that they couldn't in the past. The problem is that crutch has prevented us from doing the hard work necessary to learn to get along with the people that live next door to us. The reason communities were so much stronger in the past is people had to talk to each other because the people that they could look out the door and see were in most ways all that they had. 
I think mentorship and volunteering brings us back to that world. And the beautiful thing is, it brings us back to that world by choice rather than necessity. Choice is always good, but making the right choices is imperative to being able to get things done in a way that's actually productive. Well, that wraps up our community revitalization segment for today. If you have ideas on revitalizing communities, please let us know, and we will try to continue uh, to do this on Mondays again until I run out of material. I already do have a segment for next week, so it will go on for at least one more week. As we move forward today, I want to uh, also remind you guys that episode 2500 of the Survival Podcast is bearing down on us hard. Uh, we are, as of today, 43 episodes away from episode 2500, and I want you to be part of it. You can be part of it by calling the jerk line. The jerk line uh, will, uh, will be up and running until episode 2500, in which time it will come down. The phone number to call the jerk line, 877-644-1345, 877-644-1345. Six four four thirteen forty five. Somebody said on social media that the jerk line sounds like a really bad porno line. It isn't. It's just me inviting you to tell me for episode twenty five hundred how the survival podcast and our communities and people you've met through them has made your life just a little bit better and why I'm a jerk for making your life better. This started out long ago when I would say things like, you're never going to pay off all your debt, and then call in and go, Jack, because of you, I paid off all my debt, and now I have all this stupid money that I don't know what to do with. You're such a jerk. And then about five years into the show, people started occasionally calling in and calling me a jerk. It became a thing, and it's just fun, and it is a way to let the community know that you're out there, what you're doing in your life, and the impact that TSP has had on you. And it's really great for new listeners to hear those shows. We did this for our one-year anniversary. We did it for episode 500. Now we're doing it for episode 2500. Because what I think is really important about this community, we talk about community a lot. There, there's, a, there's a song that was in the movie about Lane Frost, the bull rider. And it's, it was called, it was uh, by Billy something, whatever. But the song was, that's why we call them heroes. They, and it said, they point to the best in us all and say, if I can, you can too. Can't remember the whole song, but I rem I've always remembered that line. Because that's really why everybody's a hero to somebody. People look and see other people. And instead of seeing larger-than-life, amazing people who do amazing things, they see regular, everyday people doing really cool things that they would like to do and say, wait a minute, if that person can do that, so can I. So be part of the jerk line. Call into the jerk line. And tell me about the amazing things you're doing in your life, whether it's just that little herb garden you put in or major life changes. It doesn't matter. Trust me, it will inspire somebody. Episode 2500 will be one for the history books, so why not write your name into it? If you don't want your name going out there, just call yourself something else. No one will know. Uh, next up, how would you like it if you could go to college, especially if you're a young person try to start out your career, and do it for a dollar a day. Well, CNN Business has an article out here. It just came out on the 4th of June, a few weeks ago. And its headline is, Walmart will recruit high school students with free SAT prep and $1 a day college tuition. Now, there are some restrictions. There's only, I think, eight colleges that are part of it now, but they're going to be adding more. They expect over the coming years for over 60,000 Walmart employees to do this. They're primarily targeting young people that are still in high school, but some workers who have participated in it already are over 60. They do have specific um, majors that they 
support this, some being things like supply chain logistics. You might understand why Walmart uh, might choose that you know, as a major to sponsor their employees into. The goal of Walmart is for the majority of the people to participate in this to remain with Walmart and work with them and develop their careers there, though they know some will go elsewhere. They have determined already that by doing this, it is an incredibly positive return of investment, so they're going to keep doing it. But what does this really say? No, Jack's not going to bash colleges. Not right now. We'll do that in just a little bit. Trust me. We'll have an ample opportunity over the coming years to go see. I told you many times when it comes to college, but there are good things that come from a university education, specifically when an employer says, we want people with this specific education to work for us. Now, that is a, that is a degree that you at least want to consider if at least that area is something you kind of think is a good idea to be part of. So I, I'm not bashing colleges here. What I'm going to bash is minimum wage. Minimum wage. Why is this happening? Why is Walmart providing free SAT prep and providing a tuition assistance so that the student can go to college for a dollar a day? There's been a lot of to-do and hubbub lately about fight for 15. We need a $15 an hour minimum wage. If you start to look at what jobs pay today, you're starting to see real quick that a $15 minimum wage will not benefit people uh, that are on the low end of the pay scale. It will benefit people on the higher end of the pay scale. Have you ever wondered why all these government unions and such are so concerned about a $15 minimum wage when all the people that are within their unions and working their jobs are already making more than that? Do you think they really care about the poor person trying to survive on seven, seven seventy-five, or whatever it is an hour? Uh, for the uh, federal minimum wage, which has, by the way, been raised in a lot of states already beyond the federal number. Let's talk about Walmart. Walmart's current minimum wage, I believe, is $11 an hour, and they've uh, stated that I think it's by the end of the year it's going to 12 something an hour. Uh, the average person at Walmart, the average person, um, is paying entry-level workers 11 bucks an hour, but the average Worker is earning seventeen fifty five an hour plus benefits. And now you can go work for Walmart, and even if you are at the bottom end of the pay scale as a young high school kid just struggling uh, to make a little bit of money and go to school, you can go to school for a dollar an hour. Target has raised minimum wage to something like 14, $13 or $14 an hour and have committed to hitting $15 an hour by 2020, uh, for all of their lowest paying job, uh, regardless of whether the government fights for 15 or not. And all of these companies, everywhere you look, are coming up with all these different types of incentives to drag people into work. This is what people that are proponents of free market solutions have said forever. There is no need for a minimum wage law. If, if everybody's just going to pay minimum wage, why is Walmart paying its average person more than double it right now? Almost the 15 that people say that it has to be. That's average to work at Walmart. It's not that hard. It really is. I know some of you, you know, retail's like, I happen to know. I happen to have lived that part of my life. But really, you don't need to be that skilled a person to scan barcodes and charge somebody money. You don't. And if you say you do, I'm going to take, you know, anybody that says you do, you push me. 
I will go down to this local effing Walmart down the road from me, and I will video the lack of competence behind those cash registers, and you tell me those people are worth the money they're getting, let alone being fought for 15 for. But yet they're going to make it anyway. And why? Because when the economy's strong and people have options when it comes to employment, the more options they have, the more they have to compete. And you see companies like Walmart and Target that see each other as direct competitors competing for the same pool of employees constantly having to up the ante a little bit. So regardless of your feelings on college or whether this program is good for Walmart or good for people or whatever, what you're actually seeing is a free market economy, at least what's left of one in this country, do what it will always do. And that is the more options workers have, including low-level work, the more companies will have to pay good employees for their time. It's that simple, and it's not hard to understand unless you just don't want to understand it. Unfortunately, the number one source of a lack of understanding of economics today seems to be the university system, and we will talk more about that in just a bit. Uh, next one is on home aquaculture production, producing fish for yourself in your own backyard, something I am a huge proponent of. Uh, this comes in from Tim. Tim says, hey, Jack. How do you know if your fish are getting enough to eat or how much food a pond will produce for itself? I live in Bristol, Virginia, and I just recently put in about a 10,000-gallon pond, 18 feet by 40 feet by 3 feet. Okay, Tim, I'm a little jealous your pond is bigger than mine. And with ponds, size does matter. Uh, and we've thrown in about 25 smallish bluegills. Just so you know, Tim... Over time, that pond can support a lot more than 25 bluegills. Just saying. I'm warm composting and throwing in small handfuls of red wigglers most days. I've also started black soldier fly bin after your recent show, but they're just starting to trickle in. I've thought about hanging a solar-powered bug zapper over the pond, but not sure if that's a good idea or not. Basically, I don't mind buying some fish food for now, but just don't know if I need to. I think fish are decent at dealing with lower amounts of food when they need to, but I'll also like them to grow out and harvest them this fall. Thanks. Loved your show for years, Tim. Um, first of all, upon the size you're talking about, especially you know by, you, by the time you go into next year, if you build enough ecology into that pond, you're going to have things like bugs and mosquitoes and stuff going in there, uh, algae growth, and uh, some you know you stock it with some minnows or something like that. You probably could not feed those fish a damn thing, and none of them are going to starve to death. They're going to be okay. Your winters are fairly long, and they're not going to eat much during the winters, and you're probably not going to heat upon that size. So you don't need to worry that they're going to get enough food to survive, and your supplementation of worms and soldier fly larvae is great. However, I would probably feed them some pellet food. And the way I would feed pellet food is just throw small amounts in there, very small amounts at first, because you probably will find, since these are wild-caught fish, that at first they may not take to eating pellet food very, very well. However, it won't take long till the time they'll figure out, hey, those things hitting the water up there, those are pretty good, and they'll start eating them. And the way that you want to feed them at that point is you go out, the best time, in my opinion, to feed is early morning or late evening. So you want it to still be light out, but the sun's pretty much setting or has set, but still got light. Uh, that way, there's enough ambient light above the water level that kind of silhouettes the feed, and they're kind of in that triggered mode. And you want to feed them until they stop eating. And if there's much food left after they stop eating, feed them less the next day. You can take a day off here or there, but I would suggest finding a good quality fish feed uh, at a local source. 
and feeding a few handfuls a day. There's a, a bunch of reasons why. Number one, more important for you than me is your short uh, summer. Your fish are only going to eat heavily during the time that the water temperature is high enough for them to do so, and things like your bugs and insects and all are going to go largely inactive outside of those times. So they're not going to have a lot of natural feed, um, and they're definitely not going to eat heavily on even if you offer them supplemental feed. And you'll find at some point the water temperature will get cold enough that when you offer them some pellet feed, even when they become aggressive feeders, they won't eat. When you find that number for you and your fish, stop feeding them. And keep an eye on them as you as, and water temperatures. And as the water temperature begins to come above that, the other side of the, the season, going into spring, start feeding them again. You want to do this so that you can put size and weight on your fish when they're willing to eat. Because fish produce enough for what you give them to make it worth feeding. The next thing is I would try, with especially upon that size, to get in quite a bit of, of vegetation and hiding spots and stock the hell out of it with local minnows. My favorite minnow to stock is the lowly mosquito fish, or Grambrosia. Uh, they are basically a northern form of guppy. I think they're just fine into your climate. I'm not sure about that, so you want to check into it. The reason I love the mosquito fish is not only do they eat mosquitoes, all fish eat mosquitoes, though, basically. Um, it is that they are a live bearer, which means they are very successful at reproduction. I really need to do some video of the massive quantity of fry that are in my big pond now. And with that, things like channel catfish and bluegills, etc., they're going to have an endless supply of little fish to eat. Your little fish can eat algae. So you've got little fish eating algae and mosquitoes, big fish eating little fish. You have a much more prosperous food system that way. And when you throw those handfuls of pellets in there, the little bit of pellets that are left over because your fish don't eat them all, guess what? All your little minnows will come in, eat that, put on weight, and better feed fish. The other reason I like to feed fish pellet feed and feed them in a regular schedule is when I go out there and feed those fish, And they always eat at, let's say, 7.30 at night. And they always eat aggressively. And I didn't feed them real heavy the day before or something like that. Nothing really is wrong. And I go to throw food in there, and they don't eat. Either the water temperature changed a lot, and I can check that, or something's wrong. You know when you feel sick, you don't eat. So maybe I need to drain and add some new water. Maybe I need to check my aeration system, what have you. When you have fish that normally eat and you haven't had a major swing in temperature or barometric pressure, something's wrong. So the fish tell you before a test kit will. So usually what I do, and I don't know how you fill your pond, but I just use well water since I don't have any chlorine or chloramine in it. I just throw a hose and I overflow the pond for half an hour. And that'll give me a good 10, 20% change. For you, you might have to do an hour and a half. So those are reasons I like to feed. How can you tell if you're getting enough, though? Are you getting growth? And the only way you're going to know that is to take sample sizes. So I use a hook and line. It's the easiest way I don't get my fish out of my tanks. I'll catch three or four fish, you know, and, and you can weigh them or measure them or just visually look at them and check them two or three months later. If you're not seeing over a three-month period in a, in a heavy growth season like summer a, a visible growth, then your fish aren't growing. And they're either underfed or they're stunted. And you do have to be careful that maybe your problem isn't that you're underfeeding them, but they could be stunted, and that can be based on where you got them from. One of the problems we've come across is when we get fish from little farm ponds, or not really farm ponds, like park ponds, 
where all the fish in there are like three inches long. You can get as many as you want. You can throw a cast net in there and get a hundred of them in two or three casts. Even when you feed the hell out of them, they get to be little fat porkers, but they don't get very big. And the reason is that they're so overpopulated, they have genetic predispositions to the fish that naturally don't get as big to survive. So where you're getting them from. So you'll want to check between the two. But assuming you've got good stock, if your fish aren't growing, they're not eating enough. If they are growing, they're eating enough. And, you know, again, those are the reasons that I'm big on making sure that I do do some supplemental feed. It's cheap, and pound for pound, uh, you will come a lot further uh, with weight gain per pound fed with a fish than, let's say, a chicken or a cow. Next up, I have a question from Ryan. Ryan says, uh, what deer rifle would you recommend for somebody with a bone, bum shoulder who'd like to not suffer from recoil? Listening to your D-Day show on guns while my shoulder was giving me grief prompted me to ask this question. Uh, I like the idea of building an AR for, the, for this purpose, but my state doesn't allow hunting big game with anything that is a uh, .26 caliber. I like to be able to go out and take deer, occasional elk with the same rifle while having the ability to swap out two two three for varmints and plinking. Uh, a few details on the shoulder injury. I tore it up several years back, catching myself from a fall on a job. And now even though I have most of the use back, it hurts enough to stop shooting a 12-gauge uh, after just a short while. I had two seventy, but traded after five rounds of pain. I don't need a crazy range. Just 150 yards would be my max range. Western Washington brush is the main impediment to long-range shooting. Looking forward to hearing what you have to say on this. Thanks, Ryan. Ryan, I mean, a 44 Magnum. I mean, and we'll talk about some other things here, but if you, if you just give me that, I need to be able to kill something up to the size of elk, probably going to hunt deer, not going to shoot more than 150 yards. You know, uh, 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 one of the old Ruger Deerfield carbines. Uh, the Ruger 7744, uh, the Marlin 1895, 44 Magnum, all those would be great. Um, 44 Magnum is, is fairly heavily relo uh, recoiling for a revolver, uh, but very easy to deal with as a rifle. Though firing a lot of shots out of a 44 Magnum carbine can kind of beat you up. So the solution, shoot 44 specials when you're practicing. So you, this has always been my thing with people that like have recoil sensitivity. As long as you can use the same rifle, as long as you can practice with it, as long as you put a couple rounds out of it to zero it with your hunting ammunition prior to hunting season, you're only going to shoot once or twice in the field. And when you shoot a deer or an elk, you're not going to feel it. You're just not. When you say a Remington 870 Express, as we said with his 12 gauge, you know, that's very variable. I'm assuming you mean like probably heavy heavy loads, because a you know a, a skeet load uh, is pretty mild recoiling out of a 12 gauge. Now a semi-auto does a lot to take away kind of the abuse uh, when it comes to um, recoil, but when you're trying to look at an AR-15 platform versus an AR-10, we do limit ourselves a bit with what we can do there for deer size game. Probably the best recommendation I can make for an AR-15 platform round for deer is a 300 blackout. Uh, I'm not comfortable recommending you generally would take 150-yard shots with it. It's more of about a 100-yard round cartridge, but it may work fine for you. Um, it doesn't have quite... People compare it to the 30-30 Winchester, but it is not a 30-30 Winchester. Well, that said, we could do pretty well with a 30-30 Winchester 
Elk? Maybe, maybe not. Here's what I'd like to suggest. You figure out what works for you, and then you figure out the platform. Instead of insisting on an AR for this, you know, does a three does a, a 300 blackout work for you? Well, then an AR works for you. If it doesn't, then you got to find something else. When it comes to elk, you're not going to be wandering around aimlessly and all of a sudden, oh, look, there's an elk, I need to shoot it. You're going to purposefully go out for elk. And even with a shoulder that's had an injury, and I happen to have one that's had quite an injury, um, shooting something like a 306 or a 308 once to shoot an elk is probably not going to be an issue. So what I'd like to suggest for most people that have a recoil tolerance issue is find ways to shoot regularly with lighter recoiling rifles. And if you need to step up the power to, to accommodate something in the field that needs killing, then you do it for that and for that alone. And uh, there's a lot of ways that we can make sure we can zero a rifle without beating ourselves up. Number one's a lead sled, which is basically a rifle rest that has an awful lot of weight on it. And my wife, I've had my wife out shooting 300 Weatherby Magnums on a lead sled. And she might as well be shooting a 22 in that situation. That way we know the rifle's zeroed, we have confidence in the rifle. And trust me, when you are drawing down on an elk, or even a deer, and you fire that rifle, you're not going to feel it, and that one shot is something your body you know, can absorb, unless you have a very serious injury. But the fact that you're telling me, I can shoot a 12-gauge shotgun for a while, and then it starts to hurt, and I don't really want to do it anymore because I have a shoulder injury, means that a single or a second shot even off of a, of a, of a decent center fire like a .30-06 is not going to be a problem. But if, if I had to look for something that would do most of what you say, 44 Magnum or 357 Magnum Carbine, uh, for day-to-day stuff, do more than you would think. I uh, took a, a, a doe a couple of years ago with a 357 Magnum at about 110 yards. Threw and through shot. She didn't go very far. So let's take another one. So next up, this comes from Kim. Kim says, um, leasing versus buying a truck. What are the numbers behind leasing a vehicle? And then Matthew to determine how it compares to buying. I have a new Ford F-150 on order, due in seven weeks. I've bought many vehicles before. I've never leased one. What are the leasing numbers? How do I do the math to compare the two? Ideally, I would like to be able to make the comparison while sitting at the dealer. This is an Excel question. Uh, I know how to use Excel. This is not an Excel question. I know how to use Excel. Thanks for your time, Kim. Kim, don't take this the wrong way, but maybe you don't because you're asking the question, how do I use Excel, in a way. Let me explain something. So when I bought my Toyota 4Runner for my wife, leased it, what I did is I looked at the numbers, and my biggest thing was, what? how long am I going to lease this vehicle? And the answer is three years. What is my down payment going to be? And if it's a comparable down payment on a buy versus a lease. Then at the end of the lease, if I wanted to turn it into a buy, I wanted to buy the, the vehicle, say, I want to buy it now, right? How does that number compare to the amortization number, which is simply how much the balance falls on the vehicle if I were to have done the buy. And it worked out about this way. It was about $225 a month less to lease the vehicle. And at 36 months, I owed about $850 more if I wanted to convert the lease to a buy, right, than if I had just done a purchase. Well, we don't need Excel to figure out that leasing is a better option there. 
Because if I had taken over 36 months, just half of, it, we, let's say we rounded it down to $200 and I took 100 bucks of the 200 and put it in a bank account to later buy the vehicle, I would have $3,600 to make up the 800 Now, when you have something that's three or four-fold better, you always side with that. So that's why we had to, That's why we went to lease the vehicle. Now, there were some things in play here. How many miles a year are you going to drive, and what does that do to the underlying value of the leased vehicle? And you got to look at the purchased vehicle as well to a degree. Um, but that is a huge deal. So we knew that she would drive somewhere between 12 and 15,000 miles. We built the lease at 15,000 miles a year instead of 12, so we knew what we were dealing with on the, on the off side, and the numbers worked out that way. And that's what you have to do. And let me explain something about this. We often look at the guy that's selling us a car as the adversary, and in some ways they are, on the pricing of the vehicle itself. You know, What kind of deal can you get? They are not your adversary when you are choosing between a buy and a lease. A car salesman could not give a fiddler's fart whether you buy a vehicle or lease the vehicle. It goes down for him as a sale. Doesn't care, right? You seldom write a check in full for a vehicle. Most people finance a vehicle. They don't care about that either. They sell the vehicle under certain terms of what they're able to do, and then that's the end of it. So when I'm making a deal, I will say right out front, you need to give me the best deal that you can, And when we get down to making the deal, if I'm not quite sure about that deal, and they say, let me go talk to my manager, I'll say, why don't you go get your manager and let him talk to me because I'm not going to buy from you now. And they get a very strange look on their face, and that's where I say, I told you not to lie to me. I told you to give me the best deal that you had. Now you're telling me you can get a better deal, which means you lied to me. I don't deal with people that lied to me. Go get me somebody else. And in doing so, we've kind of trained the dealership to do that with us from the beginning. So we don't have a lot more of this adversarial crap going on. But that's how you make the decision. What does the number look like at the end of the lease versus the midterm of the financing? And you may find with an F-150 that you are behind by leasing and you're better off buying. Or you may not. It depends on the vehicle, its options, its resale value, its desirability. The fact that you have to wait seven weeks to get this tells me that it's not your general run-of-the-mill F-150, but that doesn't always translate into high resellability. Because a lot of times when people really customize a vehicle, they're willing to pay for all that crap, but how many other people are, especially when the vehicle has 40,000 miles on it? So you got to factor all that in, and that's how you're going to figure it out. But that's what it comes down to. If it's 24-month or 36-month lease, What do the two methods of purchase look like compared to one another at that point? So what you'll need from your dealer is the amortization schedule for the vehicle based on the financing available to you with similar down payments. So if you're going to put $3,000 down or $4,000 down on both, you need to start from the same premise. This is how much money I'm bringing to the table. What does the end of my lease look like? And what does, the, what does my vehicle have in value? And what does my vehicle have in what I still owe? And one of the reasons you'll find often the lease will come out ahead with high resale value vehicles is when you're making car payments on a 60-month uh, note, you don't actually start to affect the balance very much until that third year. Where with the lease, it just is what it is. So that's how you're going to make that. And don't see 
your dealer is your adversary in making the decision, do see them as potentially your adversary in not making you the best deal that they can. Uh, sounds like you've already made a deal, though. Uh, if you have the vehicle on order. So now you're just making a purchasing decision. So that's what I would do. I would say I want to know terms on a 24- and 36-month lease on this vehicle. I want to know what, what the disposal looks like. In other words, when, when we've leased our vehicle, and Toyota 4Runners have a very high resale value, that's part of why we did this, they said, well, if, if you get to the end of this lease and you don't want to lease another vehicle, and you don't want to buy it, what we will do is we will give you something like $1,850 cash, and you can just like leave the car, give us the keys, and go away. Go buy something else. They pre-gave us the price. Now, that assumed that we did our maintenance, right? that we didn't run it into a tree and not get it fixed, right? and we didn't go high, highly over the mileage. But they were able to give us an estimate of what they were willing to pay us for it. They might tell you, well, you have to give us $500, Well, that changes things. So you need to do all the terms of ending the lease, what they look like. And uh, the vehicles that this generally works out the best for generally involve a buyout by them to you. The, the reason this works with the Forerunner is they don't make that many of them. And they are highly desired by people that really can't afford them. So they're willing to pay too much for them when they have 40,000 miles on them. So that's kind of the sweet spot you're looking for to make this formula work out. Uh, next up, uh, this comes from Derek. Derek says, uh, reserve back blockchain with buy-in from Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, Stripe, among others. New blockchain startups still happen pretty frequently. However, it's not every day you find one with the level of buy-in from groups like Visa, MasterCard, uh, PayPal, and Stripe. Beyond that, it's apparently reserve back. Could this be a real contender? Is this something private parties could get involved with? Time will tell. This is, of course, Libra, uh, Libra currency. Now, what a lot of people don't seem to realize that are hearing about Libra from just hearing about the currency alone, instead of hearing about um, the, the the actual force behind this is that Libra is the currency that's being backed by none other than Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. And I have two articles for you on this cryptocurrency in the show notes. But Facebook is going to be the main venue by which Libra is supposedly going to be used. So Facebook Marketplace becomes a place to spend Libra. And normally... I am big on when we're looking at a cryptocurrency, what is the utility? What does it do that money doesn't do? So when you look at something like Steam, which is pretty cheap, but it does have a function. Steam is a cryptocurrency that's used on the Steam platform uh, where people basically write articles and other people thank them for their work by giving them a little bit of Steam. right? Okay, well, there's a utility there. When I look at things like you know Bitcoin, what does Bitcoin do? Bitcoin lets you spend money without using cash. And most of the clones of Bitcoin do kind of the same thing. If we look at something like Dash, Dash is a Bitcoin clone made by a fork that lets you spend money without using cash, without being attached to the dollar in any way, and do so either publicly or privately. So it has its own unit, and there's a lot of others that now do that as well. 
And then we can look at things like the ARK cryptocurrency that I'm a big fan of. And kind of its big value is that it's designed and developed to be a platform by which other cryptocurrencies can be made that might not necessarily be cryptocurrencies. They might be used for internal purchasing, uh, accounting within a company or a, a conglomerate. Or they might even be able to be used to, to run a royalty program. So that ARC currency itself not necessarily having a specific utility, but the platform itself having a utility. So if you tell me something like the largest social media company in the world is creating a cryptocurrency to be used by its members, you think I'd be happy about it. But it's a reserve-backed cryptocurrency. Well, what does that mean? That means that it gets sold into circulation, which in of itself isn't bad. That means that instead of mining it or doing proof of stake or whatever, somebody needs some, they don't have anybody to get any from because they don't have anything to trade for it, all they have is dollars, it's not available on an exchange because you don't really make money by selling it, so you would only sell it if you just needed some cash. Got it? So now... The Zuckerberg machine, who, who says they're not actually in control, this is a third-party thing they're backing, okay. Um, the machine says, oh, Joe Blow in Sheboyganville wants $2,000 worth of Libra. So it makes $2,000 worth of Libra and gives it to Joe, and the money goes into the machine, And then the machine invests the money in safe investments like government bonds or low-yield bank accounts. Then the interest earned on those goes to the early adopters like Stripe and PayPal and I'm quite sure Facebook as a dividend for investing in the infrastructure. However, first it's used to maintain the system itself. So there's enough of an interest payment back for the machine to run, and then all the surplus goes to the people running the machine, and the users simply have a space token that they can use in place of a dollar. It does nothing to help starve off inflation. It does nothing to be infinitely portable. But yet all the reasons that they're giving for it are the same reasons we've said for things like Bitcoin for 10 years now that we were told did not apply, like all the poor people who are unbanked. There are millions upon millions of people in the world who can't open a bank account, but they can get a Jack's wallet and trade Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of the other cryptocurrencies. But Libra is going to do that now, and now it's legitimate, but what we were doing, it was only so people could pay to have people murdered or buy drugs online. See, here's the thing. <clears throat> you have to understand what the point of cryptocurrency in the first place was. It was never just so Joe could send Tom money in Japan. There's always been ways for Joe in Tennessee to send Tom in Japan money. There were some government oversight, some hoops and capital controls and things like that. But if you think of mainstream, you know, corporate-backed currencies, not going to have some of those, well, you got to be kidding yourself. But that was never really what it was about. What was it about is us not needing them. Us being able to say, we understand that all value in an economy comes from labor. There's always something somebody does somewhere. And then the value of that labor and the product associated with circulating within the economy is the value. The money, it's just a hard part for people to understand, the money has no value in of itself. 
A $1 bill and a $100 bill are the same material. The only reason that the $100 bill buys you more than the $1 bill is we've all agreed to it collectively, and it's hard to make that $100 bill fake. It's easy to detect if counterfeited. So when we created Bitcoin or Litecoin or any of these cryptocurrencies, the fact that they were limited in supply and difficult, if not impossible, to counterfeit and could be reliably transferred allowed them to function as money. They don't have any value at all to themselves. None of them do. Not U.S. dollars, not gold coins. None of them are worth jack diddly shit in reality in and of themselves. It is the collective agreement of people participating in an economy to accept them as a means of accounting for the exchange of product and service, which all has its root value in labor that gives value to that currency. Now, what cryptocurrencies do, by limiting the total supply and by having fixed rules as to how that supply can expand over time, is create a deflationary model. In other words, since there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins, since a whole shitload of them are basically lost, every time somebody jumps into the world of Bitcoin and buys one Bitcoin, there's one less Bitcoin available. Is scarcity due to technology that creates the limit on the cap of the supply? And then an unwillingness to part with something because it is intrinsically deflationary. Your dollar is intrinsically inflationary, therefore you are encouraged to spend it. A silver bar over time is intrinsically deflationary, so people are intended, incentivized on some level to save it, or the detractors would say to hoard it. It's how Bitcoin works. But it's all done with labor performed by what? Computers. That require significant capital of investment, but all value comes from labor, and you meant human labor. Well, to a degree, yes. Somewhere in the end, somebody had to make the make the uh, computing hardware. Somebody had to set it up. Someone has to pay for the electricity. Somebody has to do the work to get the oil or the gas or the solar energy that does that. Even with a proof of stake like ARC, somebody has to run computers somewhere. And then someone has to do something so that somebody else wants it. So I have to grow the food so you can buy it, or I have to make the computer so you can buy it, or I have to provide the hosting space so you will buy it for me to put your website on. This is how money works, and it's a fundamental lack of understanding of money that creates confusion in all this. So when you create a cryptocurrency that is nothing but a representation of the dollar, it's basically tether, which traders only use to park their money in between trades. There's no incentive for me to use that over the dollar. What's well, my incentive to use Bitcoin over the dollar? They can't seize my Bitcoin. I can memorize a key and go to France and plug it into a smartphone that I buy over there with the 500 bucks I took with me, and I can have access to all my money. Over time, and assuming that the whole thing doesn't fall apart, and I don't think that it will, then what you end up with is a cryptocurrency that retains its value versus declines its value. They make a big deal on the Libra website that, hey, look, unlike Bitcoin, oh, man, 
you can know that if you have enough money to buy a coffee today, you'll have enough money to buy a coffee tomorrow. Now, we all know Bitcoin went through a massive price correction. It's currently on another bull run. I'll talk about that in just a second. But how would you like to have had enough Bitcoin to buy a cup of coffee eight years ago? What would that buy you today? Why don't you go do that math to figure out if Libra being worth about the same or actually worth less is a better deal. And that's why these type of, of, of cryptocurrencies are just simply the establishment trying to shine up the same old thing, which is basically Federal Reserve dollars, which enriches the banking system, which is why these big players, what are actually banking system members, are being part of. Basically, I find it to be an admission that they do not understand cryptocurrency in the first place. Or that they do, and they're trying to assume that most people don't. And I think this is why it's a good thing, though. Let's say the average Facebook user finds out about this thing and adopts it and starts using it. Well, now they're using cryptocurrency. The one saving grace is it pretty much will work like all cryptocurrencies work. So making the leap then to using Bitcoin or Litecoin or Bitcoin Cash or ARK or Lisk or any other cryptocurrency that's out there, Not a big jump, is it, anymore? Now, well, everybody does it, so what are these other things? So I think in the end, things like Libra and any other thing like Ripple, which I think is the biggest scam on planet Earth and supposedly the banking system's version of a cryptocurrency, um, I think those will actually spur on, if they get adoption at all, more widespread adoption of actual cryptocurrencies that are designed to circumvent not be part of the banking system. And if one more person says tulip mania to me, I am going to track you down, I'm going to bring with me a large frozen fish, and I'm going to smack you in the face with it. How long has Bitcoin been around? And what's the price right now at the time of this broadcast? $10,899.50 in United States space dollars. That's what a single Bitcoin is worth. So, um... Yeah, I know that there was a big bloodbath. And it was the bloodbath that I said was coming. And it was worse than I said it would be. But when I was screaming, you know, this really is a good time to get a piece of this, we weren't at $10,000. And we weren't at fifteen, And we weren't at eighteen. Now, we were like three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 when I started really pushing Bitcoin. So, all I can say is, I wish I had figured it out sooner than I did. And I do think that right now is a good time to look at a little bit. Will this be sustainable? Let's talk about that in a couple of minutes. So I've had a lot of people say as Bitcoin has gone on its bull run lately, uh, coming back from uh, significant losses to over $10,000, uh, what's going to happen? Is this, is this a sustainable run? Is it something that I should be involved with? Um, I saw an interesting article today that I, I, I will say is 100% accurate but not necessarily right. Again, any money that goes into cryptocurrency, especially when it comes to, like, there's cryptocurrency that you have because someone spent money and bought something from you with cryptocurrency. There's cryptocurrency you have because you mined it. There's cryptocurrency you have because you bought someone who was cheap when I said to buy it and it got really high, and then you diversified, and the money started out as maybe $1,000 invested, and maybe now you're sitting on 50 grand. So you got to decide whether you want to pull that money out or not, but that's one kind of money. The other kind of money, right now you have money, and you're going to go buy with cash, cryptocurrency. If you would not gamble with that money, do not put in cryptocurrency. 
it could be a really big win or a really big loss. So what I say here is that everything in this article, and you read the whole article, I'm going to give you the base of the four reasons. They're accurate, but just because you have accurate reasons, when you say these are reasons, and you fact-check those reasons, they all fact-check, doesn't mean the conclusion is right, is what I'm saying. But I think it's got some good points. Number one is institutions, not retail, are in the driver's seat. That might sound a little confusing, but here's what they mean. The public's not buying Bitcoin. Last time, in 2017, when Bitcoin got stupid expensive, Joe Blow and his buddies heard about Bitcoin on shows like The Big Bang Theory, were, had FOMO or fear of missing out, and they dogpiled in, and people had no understanding whatsoever what Bitcoin was were buying it. All of a sudden, people I had told for years to get a little Bitcoin were calling me, how do I get Bitcoin? How do I get? And I was going, I don't think you really want to do this right now. Because I could tell they were going to do something stupid. <clears throat> you know, they're going to drop 50 grand into it or something like that. And this is when, you know, Bitcoin was crossing like 14,000. And I was like, man, I don't know if it's ever going to go below 10 again, but it could. And it did. So that's what drove it last time. Now, we have people like CME Group had 5,311 contracts, right, dwarfs the values of the 2017 uh, peak price uh, in this, this last quarter. So now we're talking about, like, futures trading and stuff like that. So more institutional money is pouring in, and, and, and companies are buying Bitcoin because they see the value long term. When you can buy something that can double in value multiple times in a year, you know, if you have some extra money, and companies tend to have extra money, the kind of companies we're talking about, they tend to do it. It's considered, you know, what you and I would look at as, man, it'd be really risky to buy a million dollars worth of Bitcoin. There are companies that, you know, and they measure their profits in billions. Yeah, you know, why don't we just put this in our little investment thing over here, our securities, what have you. Yeah, it's not that big a deal. They, they lose that kind of money all the time, and they make that kind of money all the time. Um, next, the network's better than ever. So basically, after all the hash wars and everything, Bitcoin has remained standing, and there's more people with more computing power than ever, meaning it would take a hell of a lot to, to adversely affect the network. So Bitcoin works better than it ever has before. Um, reward having is still 11 months away. Now, this is something that's like difficult for people to understand, but what they mean by that is, since Bitcoin has to get more difficult to mine over time, because there's less Bitcoin can be mined every year, because we've capped, again, 21 million ever. Every so often, for how much work you do, the amount you get back gets cut in half. Because it has to. Right? It's like, and if you think about that, that's how you can forestall the inevitable of the last Bitcoin far, far out into the future, because eventually there's a final last one and there's not a halving. But think about this old math problem you used to give kids in school. Bill is 10 feet from a wall. If Bill moves half the distance to the wall, how far away from the wall is Bill? Five feet. Okay. If Bill does it again, how far is Bill from the wall? Two and a half feet. How many times will Bill have to move half the distance to the wall before he gets to the wall? The answer is forever. A millimeter becomes half of a millimeter. You see? So we have this forestalling through this cutting in half of the rewards. Well, what that means is that 
at that point, there'll be less new Bitcoin. Well, last time, the big explosion happened right about the time that that reward having occurred. Because we had retail investors that were afraid they were going to miss out. At the same time, we had a halving. This time, we're almost a year out. We're 300-odd days, 330-odd days out. So you have a situation where investors are front-running the halving. And on kind of that bigger picture, you will eventually have the retail investor come back who's afraid to miss out. Like, they, everybody forgot about, eh, this guy died, it was a mistake. What? $10,000? What? $15,000? You see how it's going to be. So eventually, about the time, again, you know, close to a year from now, that we're heading toward this halving. And you've got all this retail, or all this uh, institutional money holding. You're going to have a return of the people that are trying to jump on the bandwagon. And the, the conclusion here is that um, we are going to eventually have Bitcoin well in excess of $20,000 of Bitcoin. I don't think that's out of, out of the, the, the ballpark at all. I think it's definitely possible, but it's not guaranteed. So you have to think about what you're doing. As I've said, I think the best way for people to get started with Bitcoin is with Coinbase because it's easy. Go buy a couple hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin. Move it into something like a Jack's wallet. Maybe buy some stuff with it. Learn how it works. Don't start trading massive amounts of money or anything, but start to understand it. And as your understanding increases, your willingness to partake in that economy increases. The best way, I believe, to get cryptocurrency is to do something for it. Because all things in the economy derive value from labor. So if you have a business, you should be accepting Bitcoin. You should be accepting. I will accept pretty much any cryptocurrency if the uh, the amount is sufficient to be worth doing. In other words, if I'm selling something for five bucks, and you want to use some obscure cryptocurrency that I don't know about, and it's such a small amount I can't convert it to something else on an exchange, I'm probably not doing it. If it's five hundred dollars and you want to use some cryptocurrency I have no faith in whatsoever, but it's exchangeable, I'll take it. Because I'll put it into ARK, or I'll put it into Bitcoin, or I'll put it into Litecoin. I mean, I'm okay with that. Uh, that's that's kind of the best way I see it. Now, there's Bitcoin, there's solid cryptocurrencies, and there's the space as a whole. I think these shit coins are dead. And you're not going to be resurrected. And any new coin that's going to do well, whether it's a coin or a token, and we won't get into the difference right now, will have to do something that nothing else does to do well coming forward. Some of the now, some of the shit coins may ride this 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 new bull run at some point. But I think a lot of the garbage is gone. And you have to think about it this way. Yeah, I'm big on MeWe. We're gonna talk about that in a second here. Right? And other uh, social media. But how many social media platforms do we need? Right? How many cryptocurrencies do we need? Unless it does something that another currency doesn't. And in the end, you know what Bitcoin has? An incredibly large infrastructure and first mover advantage. It is the gold of cryptocurrency, as I've said for many years now. So I, there you go. I know it's not a straight-up answer like, hey, go all in. I, You know, when I was saying it was time, good time to get some cryptocurrency was a few months ago. Um when nobody wanted it, right? When it was like, ah, this is a tool of mania. No, no. 
Anyway, let's go on. Um, one of the cryptocurrencies I really love is ARC. I love the proof-of-stake model because it's a lot more efficient from an energy utilization standpoint. It's incredibly secure, and it allows anybody who has any, any amount of ARC whatsoever to earn some level of a return on it by staking their ARC and voting for um, a, a, a stakeholder. And um, I, I really like it. So not really a cryptocurrency subject, though. MeWe. So we've been doing the MeWe Mondays, which means on Monday we don't go on Facebook. We go to MeWe. And I don't post jack crap on Facebook on Mondays except maybe a cute graphic that says, hey, you want to talk to Jackie's on MeWe. Um, but what I noticed over there is they have a thing called pages. And pages are supposed to cost $2.99 a month to run a page. But when I tried to set one up, they didn't ask for any money. Okay, fine. So I set one up for ARC. And all I'm doing is taking all of ARC's postings on their Facebook page and cutting, cutting and pasting them over to MeWe so that people on MeWe can follow ARC. Well, someday ARC might decide, hey, you know what? There's thousands of people over there following us because this Spearco character built our page for us and has all these people following him, and he has control of our... We'd like our page, please. Well, I'd like some ARC, please. I might actually just give it to him. I don't know. The longer I have it, the more I do, the more I'm going to want for it. And it just made me think back to, remember the days when dot-coms were brand new and you could go get a domain name? There were people that were smart, and they went out and got domain names like Coke.com. And I'm just saying, I don't think it will ever be that big. But you can do a lot to grow a presence using an absent brand on MeWe right now. And become the fanboy of that brand and therefore have access to the whole MeWe community for that brand and therefore leverage to do things with. Or potentially maybe one day be willing to turn those internet properties over for some level of profit. Just a little thing. And if you'd like to follow me on MeWe, you can do that. And if you'd like to see my new art page, you can do that too. I have links in the show notes. Next up, I had a question on storage of tomatillos. So... Um, Josh says, how do we store freshly picked tomatillos until you harvest enough for use in salsa recipe? Hope you're enjoying the vacation. Thanks, Josh. Well, here's what's going to happen, Josh. You got like a tomatillo and you're like, well, yay, I have a tomatillo. Yeah. I don't know what to do with it because one tomatillo does not solve some hate. So, you know, like three or four, depending on how big they are, tomatillos to make a decent sized tomatillo salsa. The good news is tomatillos do store uh, significantly longer than tomatoes. And cool, dry, somewhat dark, leave the husk on, uh, don't refrigerate. That's kind of the best you can do. If they do start to get really soft, then you got to use them or they're going to go off on you. But the good news is pretty soon your problem is going to be, Jack, I have so many tomatillos, I don't know what the hell to do with them. Let's solve the first problem, though. Let's say like you got two tomatillos, and you're like, I can't make a significant amount of tomatillo salsa. Um, that's probably enough to make a decent amount of fresh. I think what you're wanting to do, Josh, is make salsa to can it, right? So it's just not like if I can make a jar, I'm not going to can one jar, right? So go ahead and make your fresh. If you don't have enough to even make it worth like weekend, friends are coming over, I want to make a big old bowl of salsa, don't have enough tomatillos, mix them with tomatoes. Just mix them with tomatoes. Like, tomatillo and tomato mixed into a single salsa is flipping awesome. Use some green onions, uh, some jalapenos. Try a roasted salsa with them. Fantastic. But I found a video 
that I think you're going to like. And for those that want tomatillo salsa, it's a long-term storable, but you're getting limited quantities over time, it may be a much better option. And basically it is dehydrate them. Dehydrated tomatillo salsa? Are you crazy? Oh, it looks so good. There's a video somebody in the MeWe chat forwarded to me today while we were talking about this. And basically, they have all the stuff, like jalapenos and green onion and stuff like that, dehydrated. And they actually make the tomatillo into a powder. And when they mix the salsa up, they basically they gave the ingredients, they put it in a jar, they dumped in boiling water, they put the lid on it, and put it in the refrigerator let it cool down. And for 30 minutes. And it looked awesome. Now, it's one of those videos you got to pay attention to, but you can skip ahead and get the quantities and all, because it's music and text. There's nobody talking or explaining it. Some people love those, some people not so much. I don't like them that much because I like the multitask, and that you can't really multitask with, but it's a great idea. And I've been dehydrating the hell out of tomatoes. I'm going to try it with tomatoes and let you guys know my results. But that's what I would do, Josh. Either just cool, dark, leave the husks on until you have enough to make it worth using, or go ahead and make fresh and wait until the mass. Because what's going to happen with tomatillos, that's what it's like a couple, three, a couple, three, a couple, three. And then also you're like, oh my freaking God, what do I do? The other thing about tomatillos, they will stay on the vine viable for a lot longer than a tomato. Like a tomato starts to turn red, you don't pick it for a couple days, it cracks. Tomatillos can be on the vine for a very long time. So the other way is just leave them on the vine. Also, I think you'll find that if you if you cut, like if you're not going to lose a bunch of a vine, but if you cut like the stem with the tomatillo and leave some stem on it, they'll also last longer. But husk on, cool, dry place, not refrigerated. All right, let's go on from there. And again, check out the video, dude. I think you will like it. Uh, next up today, uh, i got to play something for you right now. Just listen to this. Like I said, it's Freddie Mercury week, but it just so happened to work out this way. This article is in the Atlantic, and it is the surreal end of an American college. Um, I and my wife have both developed contempt, total contempt for the word surreal. And, and, and here's where it goes back. It goes back to 9-11. So before 9-11, surreal was used for things that actually were surreal, like 9-11. 9-11 was a mainstream surreal event. And all of a sudden, the word surreal became used all the time for things that are far from surreal. A liberal arts college in, um, in Brookline, Massachusetts, um, going bankrupt and closing its doors is not surreal. It's inevitable. 
Let me read you just a little bit of the article. You can read the rest if you want to. Like most other colleges across the country, Newberry College, a small, private, liberal arts school in Brookline, Massachusetts, held classes through the end of this past spring semester and then bid farewell to cap-and-gown-wearing seniors. But unlike almost every other college, those classes, and that farewell, were the school's last. Newberry officially ceased operations at the end of May. One of the first sources to publicly confirm the long-rumored closure was the president's blog, where the news was shared last December. Quote, It is with a heavy heart, the school's president, Joseph Chilo, wrote, that I announce our intention to commence with the closing of Newberry College, this institution we all love so Dearly, isn't it so surreal? No, it's exactly what a redneck hippie duck farmer from Texas told you would start to see in a couple of years. Well, a couple of years ago, this is the reality. Your college degree, if it's not in something significant and tangible that employers value, is bullshit. It doesn't matter how much you paid for it, and our government has ensured that every college, every student can go to college if they really want to. Not even if they're qualified to. If you really want to go to college, you can get money, and you can get accepted, and you can go to college. You have a cash cow of money, and now all of a sudden, all the promises are falling flat on their ass, and we have jobs paying eighty and $90,000 in a year within a couple of years of experience that do not require a degree that are unfilled. And Tommy is looking at his older sister with her nose ring serving up freaking cappuccinos at Starbucks, and she has a master's degree in some twat waddle nonsense like early French literature, and he's going, yeah, I don't think this is for me. I'm going to go take this welding apprenticeship over here or this pipe fitting apprenticeship over here. And we're like, you're going to waste your life. And Tommy's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to make money with my life. That's what's going on. So I never said that every university in the country would go bankrupt. I said that you would see many many universities closing their doors, and you would see big universities closing down pieces of the university, and you would see a drastic drop in college enrollment over the next 10, 15 years. And that is exactly what's happening, and it's not because I'm flipping Spearco Domus. It's because anybody with half a brain that doesn't have their head completely jammed up their ass, that's not sticking their fingers in ears going, la, 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 I don't want to see it. Anybody with half a brain willing to look can see this is inevitable. So, the words of the great queen and the great Freddie Mercury, another one bites the dust. And I'm not surprised even a little tiny bit. Uh, and next up, a uh, quick email here from David. David says, hey, Jack, I've got some experience with the Texas wild tomato that you ordered from the Native Seed Bank. I planted it about 10 years ago in another house I lived at. Wonderful, super strong tomato flavor and a very small cherry-type tomato. Not overly sweet, but man, it packs tomato punch, and I love it. As an aside, I never had to plant them again. They came back from volunteers every year and show up all over the yard. I moved houses seven years ago, and one hitched a ride in a potted plant. It's now all over the place on my new house as well. I also ordered the Texas Black Eyed Pea from them that makes a maroon pea. Absolutely wonderful taste and prolific producer. David. Well, David, thank you for kicking in my, me in my ass, because while I reported on this tomato, I did not order it. And the reason I didn't order it is I'm like, Jack, it's already June. Really, does it make sense to grow a tomato? I'm, I went ahead and ordered some today. 
And I'm going to go ahead and get what I can out of them this year because if nothing else, I can get a buttload of seeds. I will link in the show notes where you can get this from Native Seed Stores again. And I am going to make a run at them as a, uh, a discount provider for MSB. And if you buy from them, let them know you heard about them here. It'll make my job of getting you guys a discount for future purchases a little bit easier to do. Now, I'm going to do a lightning round here at the end because this show's gone long uh, from MeWe Mondays. So here's some stuff that came up during our MeWe Monday chat. Control of rats and mice. I've never really talked about this, but eventually I had enough of a problem with rats around here that Mr. Organic, Mr. Permaculture himself, used actual poison because I had to. First, I tried a all-non-toxic poison for all your other animals, but supposedly kills rats and mice called Rat X. It was made out of corn cobs, something or another, and you know what it did? It made the rats fatter and happier. I think they actually sent out like rat telegraph or, or smoke signals or something, rat turd messages, and said, "Hey, there's this stupid ass is feeding us over here," and it actually increased the population. Whatever supposedly it does, it doesn't work. I found a poison that's not available on Amazon anymore, but I think they all pretty much work the same. Called Old Cobbler, one bite, and it basically is a hemorrhaging agent like warfarin. And it causes them to hemorrhage and bleed to death internally. My big concern with using this toxin was always my animals. You guys know me, my dogs, my cats, they're like family to me. So I did a lot of research, and it turns out that a dog would need to eat pretty much an entire poison stick, like one of these sticks, to, to, to be terminal to an average-sized dog. And a cat would need to eat a significant amount. A little bitty rat or a little bitty mouse only needs a couple bites. And then only so much of it is bioavailable through the animal itself. And that assumes they eat the entire animal. And it assumes they eat the animal, like, right away. Uh, and that just generally doesn't happen. And so the problem is if you have, like, a massive die-off and there's hundreds of them, your dogs and cats are out there eating them like crazy, you could have pass-through poisoning. So what I decided to do was a little bit at a time. So as the population died off, there would only be so many available like that. As I killed them, I realized what happens to them is they pretty much become mummified. It's crazy what one of these things looks like when you find it. It's been dead for four or five days with this stuff. But it, it, it looks like somebody dehydrated it down to a flat rat cake. Now, my other concern is you can't really treat poisoning with this stuff because it causes internal hemorrhaging. So I can do treat a symptom. So if your dog does eat one, like that's really bad. And either the dog survives or it doesn't. And I'm not going to risk my animal's lives. Well, they make the, and you've probably seen these things. They're all, and I started noticing they're everywhere and people don't have their dogs falling over in public places. They're boxes. They use two keys like, you know, launching a nuclear missile. So you have to have both keys in them. You turn them and they unlatch. And then these bars have a hole in them and they go in pins in the back. And a rat can get in there, but a cat or a dog can't. Taking that to another level, when I use them, I put them somewhere where the dog can't get anyway, because the dog might smell rat in there, tear it apart, find his peanut butter bar, eat it, and die. So, like, I put them, we had them in the house, and it was really getting to be a problem. I put them in, like, my HVAC closet. I put them up in my attic. A little at a time, they're all gone. When I put them out in my barns and stuff like that, I put them places where the dog could never get to, and a cat really would have, like, a cat's not going to tear it open, if you see how these things are built. So... Um, the poison I use is no longer available on Amazon. Again, I'm sure pretty much all of it is about the same. The boxes are, I'll put a link to the boxes so you can see what they look like, but you might want to source these locally. Little important tip here on how I use this stuff. I am so paranoid that when I need to put new in the boxes, 
I put the dogs outside. I do everything in my sink. And any residue, I wash down the sink. And like a little crumble of this stuff, it's not a poison in of itself. Again, it's something like similar to, if not, warfarin, which is a, a, a pharmaceutical drug that taken in excess and too high a dose causes internal hemorrhaging and bleeding to death internally. So I bring that inside. I set them all up, I lock them back up, and I put this stuff away way up, like double Ziploc bags, in the back of a closet where the dogs could never get, where my grandkids could never get. And then I bring the dogs in, and I take the boxes out, and they never see the boxes. I don't want them to even be aware that they exist. And all I could say is what was a problem is not a problem anymore. It's not for everybody, but I will use it, and that's how it works. The other question was, well, how do you keep them before they're all dead for meeting your bird feed? I just use 32-gallon galvanized trash cans. You can buy at a Home Depot or Lowe's for 25 bucks, and you put the put, when your feed comes home, you dump it in the trash can, put the lid on it. Somebody said they use a, a bungee cord to strap the lid on. I've never had one get the lid off. In fact, we've used kind of the tough—I don't remember what they're called—but like the the big Rubbermaid style garbage cans with the clip-on lids. We've never had a rat chew, chew through those, but I know they can. Stainless steel garbage cans. Next up. Let's do something better than rats and mice. How about making ribs? So we had a, some stuff going on about making ribs, sous vide. I've never done them that way. I probably should. But a lot of people said they're using an Instapot or the carry canner that I recommend uh, to make uh, ribs. Fantastic way to make ribs. And if you have a pressure cooker, it's the same thing. All the carry canner is is an electric pressure cooker that also can do steam canning and slow cooking and some other stuff. Uh, the Instapot, you cannot can with the Instapot. You can can with the carry canner, but the Instapot will do pressure cooking, but not pressure canning. So both can do this. How I do my ribs. Um, I might use Chef Keith Snow's uh, Carolina Barbecue, uh, or even Low and Slow, or I might make up my own rub, but I hit my, my ribs with a rub. In the can, you know, the canner has like a, a rack where stuff can stay up out of the water that's in the bottom. So I set that in there, and I dump a bottle of beer in. I put my rub down ribs in there. I throw a couple bay leaves in there. And then I pressure cook for about 50 minutes. This is for like baby backs or St. Louis ribs. And when they come out, you got to like vent the steam, let them sit with the lid open for a while because they're so tender they'll fall apart. But set them on like a cooling rack, like for cooling baked goods or whatever, and let them cool until they're like cool to the touch. They'll firm up. Then whatever sauce you want to cook them with, if you like to sauce your ribs, baste them with a light coating of that sauce and throw them in the oven at like 425 or put them on the grill until like the outer edge crisps up. They'll be super tender, but they won't fall apart because you've let them kind of come back together after cooking them. I love smoked ribs. I do, guys. I really do. I haven't smoked a rib in a year. You try them this way. They're fantastic. The next thing is, uh, this is going to sound so crazy. There's a place in, in North Conway, New Hampshire. I found this place years ago. I ended my trip on the Appalachian Trail in northern New Hampshire. That's where I quit. I was never going to through-hike. I didn't start in Georgia. I started in Pennsylvania. I just needed to hike until I got my shit together after I got out of the Army. And when I got to northern New Hampshire and I found this little town in North Conway, I was like, I, I'm done now. I, I, I feel good. And I decided to stay there a few days, check the place out, Franconia Notch, and stuff like that. Really awesome place. Called my dad and said, hey, come get me in a couple days. So got a hotel room, got a good shower, hung out on Cannon Mountain, did all this stuff, and found all these little cool places in North Conway. Even thought about moving there to the place was so cool. I found this old General Style store, old candies and stuff like that called Zeb's. 
Let's go forward decades later. Uh, the first time I spoke at the Free State Project, we had some extra days, drove my wife up there, and we went to Zeb's. She finds this smoky apple barbecue sauce, and I'm like, ah, we'll try it. We buy it by the case. I'll put a link where you can find it. I don't get any kickbacks from there or anything, but Zeb's Smoky Apple Barbecue Sauce is the best barbecue sauce I've ever had that comes out of a jar. I'll put it at that. Next, uh, we've talked about marinating on Meat Wee Mondays today, and I came up with this crazy idea. Hey, how about you marinate your meat after you cook it, especially when you're going to grill it? That's crazy talk. You don't do that. Well, it turns out, yeah, you do. Now, I found out about this in a magazine called Bon Appetit, and it happened to be a magazine that somebody left a copy at the hotel that we stayed at in Florida. My wife saw it, knows I love cooking, found the magazine, and, like, Asked the lady up at the front of the office, like, what are you going to do with this? She's like, we'll probably throw it away. So she, like, brought it to me. And they made a real, I'm not going to go into exactly how, but they made a really good case for merit grilling your meat, so season your meat uh, with a dry rub or just salt, pepper, garlic, whatever you're going to do. Grill it, get that great sear on it, let it cool, slice it, and then apply the marinade. And as the meat is still warm but not hot and not, you know, seeping juices out of it, it will take on a great deal of the flavor. And people were talking about using like vacuum sealing to marinate and all. Here's the thing. This is the, the facts about marinating. And there are some things I love to do in a wet marinade and then cook. And there's things I like to do in a wet brine and then cook. Different thing with brining. We won't get into it today. But there is a limit to what marinating can do. And unless cooking in that marinade is going to caramelize in some way or something like that, like a good stir fry with a little bit of like a cornstarch added to it, then all you're doing is making your meat wet. The marinade can only go into the meat so far. I've seen people do actual testing, and it's a very small level of penetration into the meat. And then what you have is wet meat. And wet meat doesn't sear well. It doesn't cook well. Anybody knows if you really want to get a good sear on meat, put it on a paper towel, get it as dry as possible, put it on that searing heat, and you get those good grill marks, so you get that good pan sear. All right? So if we let it cool to slicing temperature, and we slice it, and then we apply our heavily flavorful marinade, all the pores in that meat are opened up, and it kind of takes in a lot more than it ever could raw. It really does work, and I decided to check for you guys, does Bon Appetit have a website? Yes, they do. Do they keep some of their articles behind a paywall? Yes, they do. Is this article behind a paywall? No, it's not. So I have a link for you guys in the show notes today. Contrary to what you've been told, you should be marinating meat after you grill. It's got like seven great recipes. Uh, you know me, I'm going to kind of come up with my own, but I'm going to do more with this, and I thought I would share that with you today because it came up on Me We Mondays. And then another thing came up, Ray, she was talking about how her husband says she charges too much for some of her homemade things, especially like her embroidery and all, and how much she's talking about how much time she has into it. If somebody really wants it, that's what they're going to pay for. And I just want to say one thing to any of you people that are a craftsman that are out there building really unique, one-of-a-kind things and putting your time and your heart and your art into it, never, ever, never, ever, never, 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 never apologize for your price. Because your time and what you put into something is what makes it worth something. Because what did I say earlier? All value is derived from labor. Now, I actually want to... Because I know I'm going to get but... I think the root of all value is in nature. But the way that that natural capital becomes exchangeable capital is always through some application of human value add. So there you go. Anyway, hope you enjoyed today's show. 
Uh, want to remind you, you can support this show in a couple ways. One, by becoming a member of the MSB. And I'll just say this really, really quick. I left you guys with a sale. Summer 19 or Spring 19, because I screwed it up. Either one of those discount codes would get you the MSB for 35 bucks a year. And I said that would expire Sunday. I'm not putting it on the blog. I'm not putting it on Facebook or MeWe or anything like that. But I noticed when I got home that I had the expiration date for today. So if you happen to listen to this before midnight tonight and you miss that sale, you can get it and get the MSB for 35 bucks a year. Next up, remember, the easy way, the painless way to support us is do your shopping on tspaz.com when you shop online. Doesn't matter what you buy. All you got to do is go there first. You support us. Today's item of the day, we talked a lot about cooking, the Lodge uh, Cast Iron Skillets. And I have links to all the different models there. I wanted to bring those up with you guys today because I have to tell you something, and I'm going to probably do a cooking show next week, and we're going to talk more about this. I basically feel like I've had what you would call an amicable divorce from cast iron. So, like, cast iron is now like my ex-wife. We have a couple kids together. We get along. The marriage just didn't work out. And there's times where, like, you know, maybe the one kid's going to be in high school, play or something, and we'll both go there and smile and be nice. We both have our new partners, and it's the best divorce you could have, but it's still a divorce. So there's times when we still may, you know, wax nostalgically for each other. There's nothing really that cooks better in an oven than a cast iron Dutch oven, as far as I know. So we'll still kind of keep that memory around to do that thing. But when it comes to cooking on a stovetop, everything I have gone to is carbon steel. My wife, <laughs> mentioning divorce, no, no danger there, but doesn't actually agree with me. She still uses my lodge griddle to make me bacon. I'm like, use the big 15-inch carbon steel pan, and she just hasn't yet. She's not ready to accept the divorce from cast iron, I guess. Um, it just works better. And I make a pretty good case in the write-up today for the item of the day uh, as to why. But I am going to be trialing this week. It should be here soon, a new carbon steel wok for you guys uh, that will work for everybody. I was going to get a round-bottom one, but I'm like, yeah, it'll work for me and my big heavy-duty gas grill, but won't work for a lot of people. So I've run and found the best carbon steel wok I could for the money. I'm going to make sure it's as good as I think it is. We'll bring that to you next week. We're going to talk more about cooking with carbon steel. As a prepper, if you ever have to ration your fuel, you want something that heats fast and efficiently. Cast iron heats well and evenly, and it stays hot. But it takes a lot more energy to get a big old cast iron pan hot than it does to get a thinner carbon steel pan hot, and it just works better. It's better technology. I have gotten rid of all nonstick everything. Stainless steel I use for, like, stock pots and stuff. In the end, 90% of what I cook today is on carbon steel. Check out the review. You'll see why. But you can always help us when you do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Um, most people are aware of Freddie Mercury, obviously. It was the lead singer of Queen. I don't think Queen could have been Queen without Freddie Mercury. Uh, but I, I think a lot of people aren't aware. He did quite a few solo songs, especially in the 80s. This is one of those, and it's called In My Defense. Now, this song actually wasn't a song he wrote, and it wasn't a song uh, that any other member of the band wrote. Uh, this, this was uh, originally recorded for the 1986 musical called Time. The song was written by the show's writers, David Clark and David Soames and Jeff Daniels. In 1992, a remix by Ron Neverson was released as a single after Mercury's death. This was one of Mercury's most popular singles. It's famous for the lyric... I'm just a singer with a song, which became the line, one of the lines Brian May used when speaking of Freddie, calling him a lover of life and a singer of songs. I think that's definitely true. 
The thing about this song is, like, they could have got a better guy to do it, even though it wasn't, like, really for him. It was for this musical. Um, it really sounds like, and I think a lot of people really believe this is a story of his life because it fits so well. But I, I, I think this song actually fits most people really well. Here's some of the lines. In my defense, what is there to say? All the mistakes we made must be faced today. It's not easy now knowing where to start. While the world we love tears itself apart, I'm just a singer with a song. How can I try to right the wrong? For just a singer with a melody, I'm caught in between with a fading dream. And this, this song ends with really kind of harsh and yet beautiful lyrics. I'm caught in between with a fading dream. Caught in between with a fading dream. Oh, what on earth? Oh, what on earth? How do I try? Do we live or die? Oh, God, help me. Please help me. I think what this song really says is that we've all made tremendous mistakes in our lives. And those mistakes are what brought us to where we are. In the end, sometimes we fight battles we can't win. But they're worth fighting. And when we're not sure where to go or what to do next, it does make sense for us to call on a higher power. Whatever that higher power is to us. See, I believe that even though I don't agree with many of the folks that listen to this show about what God is or who God is, I'm not a member of any uh, recognized uh, religion or revealed religion. I am what you call a deist. I believe there is some form of a God out there. And I don't necessarily believe that God would intervene in my life. But yet, would you call on that higher power if you believe that? Well, maybe. The knowledge, the knowledge that there is more, many times I think is what gives people the impetus to continue to try. Or, if they reach a point where they can't fight any longer, to know they've fought the good fight. And to reach that, that point of acceptance. And that's something that, in the end, in the end, we all must do. None of us are immortal. And that's why I always say, make the most of your dash. Hope you enjoyed this first episode back. I tried to cover a lot, move kind of quickly through it. If you want to be on a show like this, remember, just send me an email for next week, jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC in the subject line. Make sure you get the calls into the jerk line, folks. And tomorrow we will have a Just Jack show. And guess what it's going to be called? Dropping the Denominator. This is something I had a long talk with Dr. Bones about while we were in Florida together. What do I mean by dropping the denominator? Have you ever heard of doing something to the lowest common denominator? In other words, the message has to reach the stupid and that the intelligent have to suffer for it. Well, I believe society is being systemically dumbed down and specifically over the last 20 years. That's what we're going to talk about tomorrow with dropping the denominator. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. In my defense, what is there to say? All the mistakes we made must be faced today. 
It's not easy now Knowing where to start While the world we love Tears itself apart I'm just a singer With a song How can I try To right the wrong For just a singer With a melody I'm caught in between With a fading Passing song Love 